0: This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for July 8th, 2020. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, during the COVID-19 outbreak, it's become clear that the pathogenesis of the infection is different from many other forms of pneumonia. Although only a small minority of patients develop acute respiratory distress syndrome, there's such a large number of cases that we're seeing health systems stretch to their limits to care for these people. And the development of ARDS has a striking temporal pattern, often occurring relatively late in infection. So what do we know about what's happening there?
1: To be clear, we don't really know why it happens, but we're getting some idea of what happens. This week, we published a pathologic study of lungs taken from patients who died of COVID-19 related ARDS. It's not so easy to figure out the temporal sequence of what occurs histologically because we only see a single time point from every patient, and the authors only looked at seven lungs. So we get what we get. But we do get some idea of how the lungs look and how they compare with other lungs. The way they did this was they took a lungs from patients who died of COVID-19, and they compared them both to normal lungs and to a set of lungs taken from patients who had died of influenza during the H1N1 pandemic that occurred in 2009 in Germany. And they matched them as well as they could for age, sex, and disease severity. So they have two kinds of viral pneumonia compared with normal lungs. So the pathology had some things that weren't surprising at all. The infected lungs were heavy. They had diffuse alveolar damage both in influenza and in SARS-CoV-2 infection the lungs were infiltrated by T cells there were some differences there were more neutrophils in the influenza lungs as compared to the COVID-19 lungs but it's hard to know what that means and in both cases there were microthrombi there was occlusion of vessels there's more microthrombus in alveolar capillaries in COVID-19 and more in the post-capillary venules in influenza But again, it's hard to know what that means in terms of pathogenesis. But the authors went a lot farther. They used a combination of all kinds of uncommon techniques, including electron microscopy. They used a gene expression analysis and immunohistochemistry and a micro CT method to look more deeply at what was going on. And what they found using these methods was that there were increased levels of angiogenesis in both the influenza lungs and the COVID-19 lungs, but much more strikingly so in COVID-19. And the longer patients were hospitalized, the more angiogenesis was seen in COVID-19 lungs, whereas that was not true for influenza. Now, there are several limitations. This was a very small study. And so it's hard to know if this is exactly representative. And ARDS is already a very heterogeneous disease. But perhaps we're learning something about some of the underlying mechanisms and both those that are shared with other viral pneumonias and those that might be unique to COVID 19. And one could imagine that this could help us shape interventions that we use.
2: I mean, Eric, I think that these data are quite intriguing, but as you point out, it's small. And how one defines where in the disease process the patients are when they expire and therefore the lungs can be examined is important in understanding the inciting pathogenesis. But what these data do suggest is that thrombosis may be an important part of the pathology of SARS-CoV-2, which is an important parameter for us to better understand, and it correlates with other data that have emerged about the thrombotic complications associated with this infection. And it points to the likelihood that there are phases of illness associated with direct viral injury and subsequently the consequences of that injury with a thrombotic diathesis, perhaps being an important part of the clinical pathogenesis for severe illness, which may make this a bit different than some of the other viral infections or respiratory viral infections that we're used to seeing and caring for. So though I agree these data are not definitive in any way, they're quite suggestive about part of the pathology that this pathogen causes and will likely require further understanding and possible strategies of treatment.
1: Lindsay, I'd certainly echo what you'd said about the point in disease. People only die once and we only get to see their lungs at their point of death. And ARDS is often thought about as a final common pathway where many different kinds of Usually, inflammatory processes can lead to this lung damage. But because those pathways are different, even if lung damage is similar at the end, one can think about ways that might distinguish different kinds of ARDS and allow us to prevent them. So, I think I agree with you that there are intriguing and potentially useful findings here.
2: And it's hard to get pathologic tissue earlier in the illness in patients with significant lung injury from SARS-CoV-2 because you don't want to exacerbate the lung injury in a fragile patient. So we're left with these types of data to inform us, but it fits with the clinical pathophysiology where this is a, in many ways, a different kind of ARDS than the -the run-of-the-mill sepsis-associated lung injury. And these features may be suggesting reasons why, in addition to the inflammatory reaction that we're all aware of also occurs as part of the pathogenesis. And so I think these clues, when put together, may create a tapestry of a different kind of lung injury than the usual ARDS. And we'll have to continue to build on that.
0: So you say that the findings are intriguing. How might we use them?
1: Steve, I think that these results suggest that many of the strategies that people are employing might well make a difference in disease. Remember that we've studied antivirals, and it would be very useful to have antivirals that worked. But most of the other drugs that are being studied right now, and interventions that are being studied, act on host pathways. And these findings suggest that host pathways that are recruited during the infection result in a good deal of the damage that's done in the lung. And it might be that if we interfere with these pathways, we could make a difference. And there's some evidence for that. The study of dexamethasone as a therapy, which is, I'd call it a broadly acting anti-inflammatory drug, although it has many, many, many different effects, which isn't yet published, but suggests that there may be some help, is one indication of an intervention that might work. Similarly, Lindsay discussed thrombosis and antithrombotic measures might make a difference. And there are many, many more specific inhibitors of inflammation that are being studied currently and i think this offers some hope that we might figure out a magic combination that at least ameliorates the amount of damage done to, in disease
2: i mean i think that these data in particular really push us to think about the thrombotic cascade and when does that start behaving aberrantly and cause injury we don't want to use antithrombotics lightly we all have long history with coumadin and its complications however In patients where thrombosis is progressing in a way that's creating pathologic injury, the role of antithrombotic therapy, which is not something we normally think about in ARDS or think about in acute lung injury, becomes a pathway for us to really think about clinically and when and how do we deploy that. And there are studies going on looking at this, and I think these data support the intervention in this pathway as part of the abrogation of the pathogenesis of disease. And to me, that is a different kind of strategy than we normally do in an inflamed patient with typical ARDS.
1: At the same time, I think there is also a note of caution about antithrombotic therapy in these data. Because the location of thrombus was different in influenza and in COVID-19, it suggests that the inciting factor is probably not the clotting cascade and much more likely to be endothelial damage in different places. And so it's a very localized thrombosis that we're seeing in both of these diseases and broadly acting antithrombotic strategies may help, but they introduce some risk, as Lindsay suggests.
2: Absolutely, Eric. And I think these data do not support or are directive for anticoagulation. And I agree that the underlying injury may be more endothelial than directly on the clotting cascade, but these data do push us in the direction that this may be part of the cascade as people deteriorate more rapidly, but may not be the truly inciting event, but a consequence of it. And, you know, look forward to better understanding this so we can identified treatments that make sense earlier and that have less risk and toxicity.
0: This week we also published a study that bears on a different viral pneumonia, influenza. What did we learn there about how to prevent disease?
1: Steve, the study we published looked at one of the newer influenza drugs, a drug that has the terrific name of boloxivir marboxyl. This compound is actually a prodrug of the active component boloxivir, which has an unusual mechanism of action. Most of the influenza drugs we use nowadays block the viral neuraminidase, which is an enzyme on the surface of the virion, which allows it to interact efficiently with host cells. Biloxivir, on the other hand, inhibits a different viral enzyme, but this one is a cytoplasmic enzyme, the CAP-dependent endonuclease, which is required for replication of the viral RNA. And so because it's got an independent mechanism, it also has a different route of drug resistance from the other drugs that we use. The pharmacology of the drug allows it to be given as a single dose, which is attractive. And it's been studied in patients who have influenza and based on these studies, the drug is approved both here and in Japan where it was first developed. But this study was different. It looked at the ability of this drug to prevent disease in household contacts who were exposed to influenza patients. The study was done in Japan and their household contacts were randomized to either receive a single dose of biloxivir or a placebo. And then each participant was followed for the development of symptoms. If they developed symptoms, they underwent molecular testing for influenza. And an important part of this treatment is to be eligible participants had to present within 24 hours of exposure to a known case. So treatment was started very, very early. Now, that made a fairly special population. This was done in Japan, as I said, during the 2018-2019 influenza season. And most of the index patients were children. And they were infected with influenza A, which was the prevalent flu at the time. Most of the participants were adults rather than children. So, of the 375 participants in each group, in the placebo group, about 13% developed clinical flu, while in the biloxivir-treated group, fewer than 2% developed disease. And this finding held up across different subsets. It worked in both children and adults and was relatively independent of who the index patient was. As has been seen in other clinical studies, it was pretty well-tolerated. And the one major concern was that biloxivir resistance, which we know arises relatively rapidly didn't seem to matter much here. There were only a handful of resistant viruses, but none of them actually were transmitted. So it's hard to draw any conclusions about drug resistance from the study. Nevertheless, biloxivir works. We already knew that the neuraminidase inhibitors could also prevent disease, although we don't tend to use them that way. But we do have multiple drugs that can have an effect.
2: I think how we handle flu and other respiratory viruses, particularly as we go into the winter, is going to complicate how we manage SARS-CoV-2. And these types of data which can help us prevent illness might make that confusion a little bit less. However, Eric, as you point out, it is hard to identify people early and to treat them early. And that, of course, will limit the potential utility of this strategy for preventing flu and flu illness. Of course, vaccinating, I think we all think will be important to minimize that complication this winter. The issue of resistance, Eric, is always a tricky one as we see it emerge for flu uh, against this antiviral. But whether or not it's clinical relevance is going to take some more time and use to uh, determine.
1: I think that your point about when we can use this drug is really well taken. This study, as I said, was done in Japan. And in Japan, people present very early with flu symptoms. A lot of them were children. They were probably being either brought by their parents very early or presenting at school with symptoms. They were tested very early. And that allowed these investigators to recruit a very large number of participants. In the U.S., it's harder to see that we would find all that many patients who we could treat within 24 hours. Would this work within 48 hours or 72 hours? We don't know, that wasn't tested here. It's likely that by extrapolation from other studies, the longer you wait, the less effective the therapy is going to be. So how much we can extend this to the clinical situation we usually see here and will be seeing this fall while COVID-19 is circulating, it's hard to know.
0: So what then is the role for chemoprophylaxis in influenza?
1: The issue of drug resistance is a substantial one because we really do want to have drugs that we can treat flu with and broad use, especially late use of chemoprophylaxis might lead to very high rates of drug resistance because drug resistance develops very rapidly. As Lindsay said, we don't really know the significance of Beloxevere resistance. It isn't really resistance, it's reduced susceptibility. So we don't know what that means clinically, but we do know for the neuraminidase inhibitors that resistance is relatively high level and the drugs are considerably less effective. So, to the extent that we can use chemoprophylaxis, to the extent that means that we can identify exposed individuals. Early after their exposure, we probably still want to reserve this for people at the highest risk of developing complications of flu. And that would mean patients who are elderly, who have pre existing immune system disorders or pre existing lung disease. But I think we're going to have to start working this out with more experience with this drug. I suspect, though, it will look like what we do with neuraminidase inhibitors, which is we'll reserve them for special populations.
0: And as we continue to learn more about antivirals for COVID-19, do you see a possible role for chemoprophylaxis there as well?
1: I wish. We certainly need better antivirals before we can have that discussion. Right now, our one moderately effective antiviral is remdesivir, which is, as of today, an IV drug. And so it's not really practical to think of it as a preventive therapy. There are oral drugs that are being tested right now. and It may be that their best effect may be in prophylaxis when the viral titers are very low early on in infection, but I think it's quite speculative right now.
2: Steve, as we see from the flu data and other respiratory viruses, treating earlier is attractive and can ameliorate disease or prevent disease. And we would like to extrapolate this to our treatment and prevention of COVID-19. However, as we see from the pathology study, disease pathogenesis might be different. So that we have to be careful about making these assumptions that the biology is similar and therefore the treatment and prevention strategies will be similar. So like Eric, I hope that's true, but we'll need systematic study to determine if it is.
1: The one thing that I'd add is getting back to Lindsay's earlier point that influenza and COVID-19 are Going to be inextricably linked. During the beginning of the COVID 19 outbreak, what we saw as people isolated was that the number of influenza cases dropped off a cliff. It basically disappeared because influenza, just like COVID 19, requires person to person contact or close contact of people. And so the control measures that worked for COVID 19 worked very effectively for influenza as well. This fall though, as the economy has reopened, as there are more contacts between people, we're once again going to be faced with two epidemics at once. And it is going to make their management that much more complicated. For a long time, when people presented with fever and cough over the recent few months, we could make the diagnosis fairly easily, but we're going to have to be careful going into the fall to make sure that we're identifying these diseases correctly and managing them individually, which is that much more complicated than managing a single infection.
0: Thank you,
2: Eric. Thank you, Lindsay.